0: I got some responses from you about what we should do with our social media problem. You're being told lies about the election in Italy, but I need to start with about a 48 hour period for my own life that's bonkers on the True Act show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening. And I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening you and me. There might not be or meaningless, vapid question that gets asked all the time. It might be the most common question in all of the business world that I cannot stand, but it is the the ritual of the American office worker to come back on Monday and ask, How was your weekend? What did you do this weekend? And usually the answers that follow are uninspiring, uninteresting, but we all pretend to be interested. If you would have asked me that question on Monday... It would have been a different story, which is not typically. The typical if you ask me what I do on the weekend. It actually is quite boring to you. It was fulfilling to me, but not a great story. But I do have a story for you. Welcome to The Corey Truax Show, wherever you listen to podcasts and right here on his radio talk. You can find me wherever you are on social media. Just look for my weird name, Corey Truax. You can also email the show at Show at gmail.com. Among many other things that I do constantly... One I just enjoy and I'm honored to get to do is to be the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church, one of the elders there, and we meet on t- at 10.30 on Sunday mornings in Greenville. You can find us on Facebook or on the web, the interwebs out there, and I hope that you will I'll start here. There's a background pressure in my life. It's just constant. And that background pressure is an um, upcoming marriage and a wedding that is... Still got some work to be done on it. It's not really the marriage part that has me pressured. We've got an incredible biblical counselor uh, for premarital. I'm I am just more sure every day that the Lord has done a good thing. I cannot wait for this part of life. I am ready to be married and tackle that. To tackle what it means to represent Christ in the home. To be a to be a husband. To run to to run a family and a household i'm ready for it i'm excited for it but there's this background pressure of hey you you need to make sure like there's an actual wedding so that this thing is is properly celebrated and there's put before folks the the picture of christ in the church and the beauty of marriage so in that vein i I'm getting ready to get married. We, we take a break from that. Me and Nikki, I call her Nikki. Most of you would probably call her N- Nicole because she's an adult. And that's what most women named Nicole get called. Nicole instead of Nikki. Took a break. She uh so wonder- wonderfully got me tickets to the C.S. Lewis show called uh, Further, Further Up and Further In, I think was the name of it. It was at the Gunter Theater at the Peace Center, uh, downtown Greenville. And we went to that on Saturday night. And I want to start there. I want to review it. And then there's some cascading events that happen afterwards. Well, we got to hold on to that guy. Listen, I know C.S. Lewis had some wonky theology. He was he got some stuff wrong. He he did, and so I want to say that out loud. I think I've talked about C.S. Lewis once before, and at least one listener. I can't remember who reached out and had some negative things to say and why Lewis was a heretic for these all these reasons, but... I want to hold on to his contributions to Christianity in the West the last hundred years. I have to imagine you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, author author of Mere Christianity, uh, the giver of the talk or the sermon, however you want to say it, for the weight of glory, wrote screw tape letters, gave us the world of Narnia. There was... He has contributed a great deal to Christianity in the Western world. And in particular, how we communicate with a secular world. Part of the story, it's really just a biopic, tells you his life story, that in his teens, he came to atheism. In his 30s, he came back to Christianity, but to a very different one. He was in the Christianity that you're in in Europe. You're born Irish, you're Scottish, you're born Catholic. You're born Italian, you're Catholic. You're born in England, yeah, you're a Christian. There were some water sprinkled on you. You were confirmed. Yeah, so you're a Christian because you're English. That's the whole reason. But he came back to something more genuine in his 30s, and it was in that vein that he even gave us that seminal argument. The liar, the or Jesus has to be either a liar, a lunatic, or he is the Lord. He added to it, He added to it later. It could be legend, but Lewis was the one that gave us this incredible apologetic because he was so learned in ancient literature that he knew how ancient literature worked that it couldn't have been a legend because that kind of writing, that kind of narrative, that kind of novel did not come to, or did not come around the year zero or year 33 or the first hundred years after Jesus. People didn't start writing like that until more in the modern era. So if, if his stories were legend, they would have had to invented the novel, man, what a great apologetic from a, such a learned guy. I, I want to hold on to him. And I, I wrote down at least a few things, four, I think I wrote down four that I want to keep from C.S. Lewis, things I want to honor. Number one, having an intellectual faith. I, I didn't really know until this play that he was offered time on the radio, BBC, because of how prolific his writing was, how compelling his arguments were. His voice was heard around arguably the most powerful media source at the time, American radio was powerful, but the BBC was likely in the all over the world the most significant source of information. And C.S. Lewis was heard on it because he was respected. He was a thinker. He was at Oxford. He was not a not a simple person. He had some sophistication to him, and I want to keep that. I, I want a faith that's not so dumbed down, or I think it our our context, it's childish. Christianity isn't dumbed down in America. I think we just make it childish. We get surprised that people fall away from church when all we really did for them and with them, coming up through kids' church was we, we played a lot of games. A lot of them were gross. Bring the kids in and have somebody lick some peanut butter out of a peanut butter out of someone's armpit. That's real, by the way. We just we're just frivolous. Frivolous, childish stuff. We like to go into our, our worship centers. We don't even like to call them sanctuaries. Where we do frivolous things. We we sing a song that someone wrote last week. Not rooted in any kind of history. Not rooted in deep in doctrine. But just in some feelings. and feeding and fleeting feelings. We follow a liturgy or an order of service. That has no real meaning or roots in history. Just kind of, well, you know, what we thought we needed to do. This is what we've done traditionally. Here are some... Advice on marriage or finances or parenting. That has some Bible sprinkled in there, and then maybe an altar call. It's I want something higher. It's one of, one of the things I truly love about Beachwood. You, you might actually, I would argue, I think someone from the outside coming into Beechwood might argue or complain. I don't think I'm mature enough of a Christian to be here. I don't know. I mean, this is this is pretty high stuff. I mean, you you sing songs with lots of words in them. And they don't repeat a lot. The preaching assumes you already know a lot of Bible. Be and our lead pastor Doug do we assume you're going to know a lot of Bible, and and then but at the same time we're also going to offer different discipleship along the ways so that if we need to backfill your knowledge of Bible we're going to do that. We're also going to teach a lot of Bible and listen. We're not going to talk to you like your kids that you just needed a little just a little picker upper, a little talking to. No, we're going to preach. We're going to preach at a high level. We're going to teach at a high level. We're going to teach our kids catechisms. We're going to challenge their minds and teach them big words like redemption and sanctification. We're going to do that. I love that our kid's church right now has the memory verse, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, and not scared of those words. I love stuff like that. Lewis inspired me in that play. Let's have an intellectual faith and not be sorry about it. There's just a ton uh, that we can that we can put forward and be respectable in an intellectual way, but on the other end. I found so compelling his argument for a simple faith. I'll temper this in a minute, so don't get nervous. But he argues, do you get the Jesus part right? Do you recognize that this teacher in Nazareth did not just teach, that he, in very compelling and sundry ways, declared he was God in the flesh? And if you have that, if you recognize and under, if you understand the Jesus part, you're in the family. And have, I want to use very precise language. If you've repented of your sin, you follow after Jesus, and you know who Jesus is. You confess with your mouth. Jesus is the only only way to God. Under no other name, under heaven. Uh, through no, no other name under heaven will you be saved. I think that's Acts tw- 4.12. The sufficiency, the uniqueness of Christ. If you get that, you're in the family. Lewis cites the, the thief on the cross. Lewis cites some of the folks that Jesus heals. And that it's sort of the birth of a mere Christianity, right? The the very fundamental surface thing that you recognize, the core fundamentals of the gospel, that God had a good design, sin broke it the only way back to god's good design is through repentance of sin belief in jesus and the work he did on the cross there is something beautiful about that there's beauty in the simplicity that around the world at every education level and reading level at every at almost every level of development these core things you can understand and you're included in the most glorious and eternal family and in, in I was going to say in history, but like it's it's something even bro- bro- broader and grander than that. So there's, it, there's a great intellectual faith, and then there's a celebration of simple faith. And I've t- I told you I would temper it. And of course, a simple faith can't stay there. We don't just recognize all of Jesus' claims as true and worship him and him alone and then stay there. The sign of, one of the evidences of, that someone has believed in, truly been converted... Jesus will be working out their salvation with fear and trembling. It will be seeking in God's word what the Lord would have you think about everything, that you would be shaped and marked by the Bible's teaching, so God's teaching, on finances, family, marriage, sex, sexuality, uh, government, and all of your thinking about the world would would be more than a simple faith. It would develop, but that the entry, like the foot of the cross, is an, an accepting and an affirmation of who Jesus is. I So that's one the number one was intellectual faith. Number two, I want to preserve that simple faith. Two others. I think this is the thing I most love about Lewis. I would argue outside of the Bible, my favorite quote I think the most profound quote maybe of the last 100 years is when Lewis says, he didn't say it in the play, by the way. I wish he would have. He, he made the point, but didn't say these exact words. If I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, I must conclude I was made for another world. It is profound. It's that conclusion that if, if you'll turn off all the media and allow yourself to dwell like the world he lived in where there was not so much bombardment and stimulation where you could sit and think it's a conclusion that you would come to it's that idea that this given experience or this relationship or this money or this reputation or this job or this title they, they're they going to satisfy me and then you just keep getting them and just find this is awesome I love my life I love these experiences this is fun this is pleasurable why am I not satisfied? And you have to recognize, I, I've I, tried all the things in the world and I'm not satisfied. Uh Oh, what if I'm made for another world? And that's why nothing here will satisfy me. I love that he just says out loud, the pleasures of this world, they're good. Now, granted, he, he'll talk about them in some, in some ways that make some folks uh, un- uncomfortable. One of the funnier lines of the play was, uh, I did not come to Christianity for happiness. A bottle of port could do that for me. But the, the idea here being, uh, even the pleasures are hints. All the pleasures and happinesses you have, they're a hint. This is good. There's something better to come. So in, things I want to preserve, intellectual faith, that simple faith, that all of your desires on this earth, and then when you get your desires and the pleasures you experience, they're such good gifts. And they point you higher to the giver of good gifts, the inventor of all pleasures. And then finally, he wrote wrote The Problem of Pain. And I knew a lot of this, but it was so well illustrated in this play. I recommend going to it if it comes anywhere near you, uh, called Further further In and Further Up, the C.S. Lewis story. The backdrop of writing The Problem of Pain was him being in the World War II Blitzkrieg, Blitzkrieg, the Blitz over London, all the bombings and people losing family members, losing limbs and homes, losing any sort of semblance of peace and security. And he writes the problem of pain. And I I think his conclusion is, is mostly, there are no good and satisfying answers for pain and why it happens in the world. But of all of the challenging options, the Christian option is is the most fulfilling and the most comforting. That in our pain, there is purpose. In our pain, there is formation. Consider the inverse. This is Lewis's argument. Your other argument is not comforting. It gives you no resources. It's just the idea of, I'm just a clump of cells experiencing terrible things that are really hard, and then I get I get to finally die. Great. I can't wait till I actually finally die so I can stop experiencing all this terrible stuff. It's a different way to experience your pain. To know and stop and say, "Okay, Lord, I am not okay, but I know you're doing something." So, form that in me, reveal it to me. I got to take this break. I'm way over. That was the first part of a of a 48-hour period that was a whirlwind. And this next part, I think, will blow your mind in some ways. Not blow your mind. I've uh, way overplayed that. It will surprise you. So we had a C.S. Lewis night. Wait till you hear about the next morning. We'll start there on this week's Corey Truax show right here on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts in just a moment. I'm working in this premise. There's almost never a good answer to how was your weekend, but... My last one actually has was quite eventful. We just went through the CS Lewis play that was in downtown Greenville, where me and my soon-to-be wife went to uh, went to see that, and then. I'll tell you the rest of the story in just a moment. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts and on his radio talk. You can find me wherever you're on social media. Look for my weird name, Corey Truax. You can also email the show, as some of you did. I'll be covering some of that this week with your social media policy answers. That's Show at gmail.com, Show at gmail.com. Here is the shortest version I can give you. We did all of that on Saturday night in downtown Greenville, the awesome downtown Greenville. In my beloved's car. And it's because it's nicer than mine and I like to drive it. So uh, while we were doing that, I placed my car keys and my... I carry a clip. I don't carry a wallet, but it's cash, debit card, license. I placed all that in her car. Um, She went home that evening and I was at my place. I got up to go to the gym. That's what I do. And realized I don't have my keys. I searched around the house. It occurred to me, oh yeah, my keys are at or in her car. So I live very close to other family, and so I take one of their cars over to her place to get my keys. I can't find her car anywhere. Hmm, a conundrum. So I call her and I say, hey, hey babe, where'd you park? She tells me where she parks, and that car is not there. And we very quickly figure out together, the car's gone. In the upstate of South Carolina, in a... I would argue quite nice place to live, a gated and secure spot. Someone has stolen a car. You know, I talk about crime so abstractly. It's a policy matter. It's a policing matter. It's statistics. I tell you when it happens... And directly affects not just your life, but the life of someone you love. And it hits close. And I'm not that guy. I'm super objective. I recently had to take a very long emotional intelligence assessment for a thing at work. I had some serious weaknesses in my emotional intelligence. But one of my two biggest strengths was objectivity. My ability to turn everything off and just assess, is this right or wrong, true or false, Without any emotional baggage, it, it, even like to my closest family, I can assess with no excuses. Maybe, this might be too much, but I can very much say, I I adore you and love you. But listen, you've done the wrong thing, and you should suffer the consequences. Like this, this is objectivity. But even in in, in this in this realm, my objectivity was greatly hampered. Like this, this hurt the. If you feel just if you feel unsafe I mean I don't feel unsafe I was talking about this with a friend recently I really don't think I've ever felt unsafe my entire life that's just maybe the privilege of being me but it, it, well, this crime problem we have came home to be very real and we're, we're dealing with all that and it's going to be just fine you know I, I ended the last segment saying one of the one of the CS Lewis points that's important. Is that pain has no good answers, but the Christian answer is the best one. And so I don't know what the Lord is doing. Five weeks from a wedding day, and guys, listen, her wedding shoes are in that car. Flower girl dresses were in that car. Forget about my debit card. I mean, there was there's stuff in there that that mattered. But here's what I know. The Lord just is is, uh, is teaching something about affections and expectations, and these are all good lessons. It's maybe a lesson about finding safety and security in Him and Him alone. I, she and I talked about this some. How, when things like this happen, it really makes you think about the victims of crime. I, I mean, I. I will admit, I think we have a little bit of a criminal justice problem with with uh, which things we choose to punish harshly versus the things we choose to punish not harshly enough. And so I'm, I am often in my policy thinking around cl- crime, it's crime prevention, but I, I am often thinking about the men charged with crime. It's typically men and how fair and unfair their process is because our criminal justice system has some injustices in it. But these experiences are good to make sure you do focus on the reality. A lot of crimes are very real and have victims in it. And so, it it makes you both want a a good system. When people are accused, they're accused fairly and adjudicated properly. And then there's that new emotion of just wrath for the wrongdoer. The person who did this, wanting them properly punished for what they did. You know, I... I don't know why the internet decided I want, I wanted videos like this, but I will often get stories in my feed of, usually in big cities, often in California, what I would just call flash mob crimes, where 20, 30 people just go into a convenience store, just start grabbing stuff, jump behind the counter, beat up a clerk, steal a bunch of money. I had one in my feed that's even just this week from a Wawa. It's a convenience store and gas station up north. It, this one was in Philadelphia. It was about 40 people. Just go in, break cr- break the glass, grab everything you want, grab the cash register, and just walk out. And that stuff fires me up. I dislike it, obviously. And then there is – and I have wrath for that. This is just a different level of wrath now for the wrongdoer wanting to see them punished. I only have one more thought on this. It's fully, fully my thought, and I could be, I could be wrong on some of this. We are, we, we do have a crime issue. I've been talking about it a lot, and I think I've said some of this recently, so I want to breeze through this. We are becoming a lawless people, not respecting authority, not following the laws, You know, we we were designed as a country uh, to be a a moral and virtuous people. That's the only way to have a small government. The only way to have a limited government, if the people are going to behave themselves and take care of each other. But we've largely largely become lawless. We've we are a culture that tries to attack every boundary. And over decades, we have just removed boundary after boundary. We do that with the family we just break families up. Marriages aren't, aren't aren't as important as they were, so we do no-fault divorce. Men taking care of their kids isn't just isn't as important being involved with their kids, just isn't as important. We take off the boundary. The the, the lawlessness of growing f- powers further away from you instead of the ones closest to you when it comes to governments. We take boundaries off what it means to be a man or a woman what your responsibilities are to your country, to your neighborhood. We have been deconstructing the culture since basically the 50s. Piece by piece, we've been deconstructing every institution and what it's supposed to be. And so it feels like there are no boundaries. And as as everything becomes, uh, be- oh, I wonder if this is a profound way to say it. As we have made more and more things mean anything, we've made them mean nothing. So when we say family is anything, it's whatever configuration of humans choose to come together, family can mean anything, you can degrade that word to mean nothing. When we say marriage is anything, any two people, now we're, we're arbitrarily saying it's two people, when two people who love each other want to express they love each other, that they're in this institution, we, when we, when we say it includes everything, It really makes it nothing. And we could go on. When we take off all the boundaries and we say everything is, all things are everything, we say everything is nothing. It's all meaningless. We started as relativists and then became nihilists. Nothing has meaning. So What's, you know, a lot of the crimes I see now, they aren't actually crimes of passion or rage. They're crimes of indifference. You see the random crime sometimes, that, a violence that don't even lead to a like a robbery. If it wasn't a property crime. It's just violence for the sake of it. It's just meaninglessness. We were relativists that said the the world has different reality is different for every individual person. So things can mean everything, and that led to now things mean nothing. I'm not the only one also that draws a very clear correlation our crime rate spiked in 2020. As a culture in a country, we will be paying the price of COVID response in a lot of ways for a long time. The inflation you're all feeling is really a, it's a consequence of COVID response. All of the learning loss for the kids, the trouble we're having in schools, a lot of it is COVID response. We are even seeing, I mean, our our mental health deteriorated even more. Why? A lot of it was COVID response. We're going to continue to pay that price for a long time. And our crime issues are also from COVID response for a few reasons. One, we'll go back to the mental health thing. One of the things we know happened during our shutdown COVID response is people who needed treatment for stuff stopped getting it, including mental health, because we had to all stay away from each other. Even healthy people had to stay away from each other. Untreated people ended up getting worse. And you'll find there's a great deal of correlation between mental illnesses and uh, antisocial behavior. I I think we already had, had a festering nihilism, meaninglessness, a festering lawlessness, and the COVID response that we put out into the world uncovered it some and intensified it. It was a lawless time. From the highest of heights, governments who weren't allowed to do things were doing things they weren't supposed to do. It felt lawless. Governments were just saying, I'm just taking some power. You know, we're in an emergency. We're going to do whatever we want. Well, our laws and constitution say you can't do that. Yeah, we don't care. We're, we're the government. We're going to do whatever we want. There's an emergency. It felt lawless. I, I made the argument, bef- this other argument before, but it's, it bears repeating. We did see mostly protests in the summer of 2020, but those mostly protests had enough rioting and property damage that it was the most expensive, this is according to the insurance companies, the most expensive, destructive, uh, let's go with demonstrations in American history. And nothing was happening. No one was being punished. So it feels lawless. From the government to the citizen, neither were getting any kind of consequence for the things they were doing. And so we became a lawless people. And that's what has to be reinstituted. From the top, leaders following laws and being subject to those laws. And from the bottom, I mean, certainly the answer is always gospel related. It's reintroduction of some standards some care for one another if we're going to get this crime thing under control. So those are my crazy 48 hours and if they were crazy for me, consider how crazy they were for my bride to be. Uh, we're we're doing a lot right now. I mean, including, I'm, tr- I'm trying to, I'll, I'll, you don't need to get into my life. There's a lot going on. I I'll, certainly would appreciate, I mean this, would covet your prayers as we try to get a lot of life squared away in just a little bit of time. And I'm sure We will. The Lord is good. He is faithful. It's all going to work out just fine. I'm going to take this break early so that I can come back and do the following. I usually don't care about these foreign things, but you're being lied to by most media about the election outcome in Italy and some other stuff going on in Europe. I think there's some meaning for our own lives, some worldview implications we can take. I also want to cover your responses on my social media question about what we do with those companies and an update on the student loan debt transfer. We'll do that and more when you come back for the rest of The Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Would an election in Italy affect you or your worldview in any way whatsoever? I hope I can illuminate you on that in just a moment. Welcome back to the Corey Act Show, wherever you listen to podcasts and right here on his radio talk. I noticed there's a narrative forming, or that has formed, in modern, uh, let's go legacy media, the more traditional media sources around election outcomes in Italy, also recently in Sweden, I would include some others in here as we go, that... I uh, I didn't immediately disqualify. I admittedly don't follow a lot of European politics. And so I, I generally will take, oh, okay, fine, you give me some facts. And then I start to hear some troubling facts like they, they could be fascists in Italy. So I start doing my own research and find, I don't know if you are all meaning to lie to everyone, but you are, you're lying. And so I want you to be aware about the facts, about what happened there, and I think there are some bigger implications. Let's get started. Here's the narrative. This new, uh, newly elected prime minister of Italy is the first woman uh, to be prime minister in Italy. She's being called a fascist and has roots in Mussolini. Mussolini was the fascist dictator of Italy. That would have been starting in the 30s, I guess. Made an alliance with Hitler. It certainly was on the wrong side. He was with the axis of evil. Italy was during World War II. Those are the lies you're being told and that we have fascists running Italy again. You should all be terrified. Then I started looking into her. I can't pronounce her name. I think it's Margali. possibly. Here's what she is. She's a really typical European conservative. Now, granted, European conservatives are not our kind of conservatives. There's a a streak inside American conservatism that is libertarian in nature. I would argue that the libertarian streak of conservatism of the four streaks. There's, I would think, I think conservatism comes in four categories. The libertarian has been the first or second most dominant, and I, th- I think some of you would say, come on, you know, Republicans nominate George W. Bush, and then they nominate John McCain, Mitt Romney. The libertarian streak has not. Uh, been the dominant one, I think it has maybe had the most influence on policy. Conservatism, in large part, including me, had a very live and let live attitude about most things that was laissez-faire capitalism under undergirding the the system of thinking. And so uh, I, maybe I should do a, a show on that sometime, the, the four sh- strands of conservatism in, in American politics. But in European politics, that's not true. There is no conservative. uh, There is no libertarian streak. There are no libertarians in Europe. It is an assumption there that there will be big governments. Those governments are going to do a lot. They're going to have fundamentally important parts of the uh, important parts of of your life are going to be involved in government. And that's to be understood. Remember, the Europeans come out of a history where church and state were the same thing, and so things that the church were supposed to be doing the. The church was doing through the state and so after the reformation when they kind of separated and you still get that whole messy monarchy thing the idea of libertarianism it's going to be foreign to these folks because governments have been so fundamental i think it's one of the misunderstandings about calvin john calvin who had a large role for governments to play in social services well of course he actually doesn't know a world he actually doesn't have a paradigm for anything else because the church is the state and the state is the church. What else would what else would you do? They're the same thing for him. And the idea that they wouldn't be, the idea that the state wouldn't be the church and the church wouldn't be the state, that governments and churches were the same thing. That's a mind-blowing paradigm. We literally had to had to have a reformation for anyone to even spark that idea. And so in European conservatism, it's just not an it's just not a thing. So, she's just a normal European conservative. Has some nasty things to say about capitalism from time to time, but uh, that European conservatism is more defined as, I'm I'm for my country, I'm not against other countries, but I like my culture, I think it sh- it's unique, it should be celebrated, I don't want to be made like everyone else, we don't want to be in some mishmashed, uh, flattened out version of Europeanism, we actually just want our countries to be sovereign, uh, you're going to get a lot more, a lot more religion in that group as well, so that's your european conservatives they're a little less on the state services thing a little bit more capitalist but anyway right that's what she is she's not a fast fascist when i look at the um the platform she's she's not even nearly conservative enough for me right so she's not a fascist two i the, the historical ignorance of saying her party has roots in mussolini a terrible fascist a murderer it's a level of ignorance that I. it's almost hard to believe. It's not malice that they say it that way. Just Bottom line in Europe, if you're going to trace political parties or political movements roots, you're going to have a lot linked to Joseph Stalin. Stalin was arguably, in Marx, the two most significant political philosophers in Western Europe the last, well, Marx is quite a bit older. Let's go last 200 years. There's been a lot of them, but they've been really significant. And I mean, I'm not going to call the Labor Party in Britain a child of Joseph Stalin just because its ancestors as a party would have adopted communism. That's not fair. And this party of theirs called the Italian Brotherhood or Brothers of Italy. I think it's called Brothers of Italy. Yeah, it is one of the break-off child parties of the one Mussolini had, but every political party in Europe is either going to be (laughs) <laughs> that's the story of Europe all their political parties are going to be the children of leftist who killed people or rightist who killed people that's the story of Europe right so those are the lies you're being told it's not Mussolini fascism she's just a super normal European conservative and we just haven't seen one of those in a while that's not how Europe rolls what went viral for her post-election was a speech she gave on identity and this is where I think she thinks she has a lot to say about the Western world. I think for historians, I'm not calling myself one. It, it was my discipline technically, but those of us who think historically, I think we might notice more than others how the Western world often moves together, but at a different speed. We are all originating from the same places. So, uh, Europe, German, uh, sorry, Britain, Italy. France, Germany, that part of the world. We're born of feudalism, monarchy, warring monarchies and warring pa- patriarchs and di- different feudalistic tribes. Yeah. we we're we come from that, but we all experience the written word being printed together with the Gutenberg printing press we all experienced together the breaking up of monarchies, the breaking up of empires, all experienced together the reformation. It happened where the the church is slapped a little bit. and You have Protestants where you start getting some separation of church and state. Like the, the waters have largely moved together and we're still part of the West. And so the, the ideas, so the, like this new religion that's popped up, I've called wokeism, not just me, that a leftist religion called wokeism has been asserting itself and evangelizing in all of the Western countries, just at different speeds. And so that Western wokist toxin is being responded to in different ways in different places, and not always healthily right it's a really important thing for everyone to always understand just because one thing is bad doesn't mean anything that opposes it is good there there can be two bad things fighting each other two toxins can be fighting each other and there's no good guy no good guy, no good guy involved that happens i think most most often is the case in a very broken world so i think she is a good example of what a lot of the western world is feeling the Western world is feeling itself collapse. Our populations are collapsing while the rest of the world grows. The the wealth I hate this word distribution, but the wealth distribution scale has greatly changed the last one hundred years. It has gotten a lot harder to be middle class in most of these countries. There's a way of life imploding on it, its that's imploding on itself. And part of what's getting blamed is that woke religion. Because that woke religion is what has been so openly saying, you're all bad. Your countries are bad. Think of all the evil they've done. All of the vestiges of your past and your tradition, throw it out. we got to destroy it. That happens here. That's the tearing down of statues here. But they're tearing down statues of Winston Churchill in Britain. They're tearing down their history all over the Western world. The Western woke religion the wokists are doing that. And that's that's led to different responses. All, I think all of what I'm about to share with you is all part of one movement happening in the West. And it's reactive, it's responsive to this growing religion of wokism. You had Brexit. The wokists in Britain were saying, We need to be more integrated. You, the Brits, you need to be even more submitted and in subjugation to Brussels, where the EU is headquartered. They get to tell you how your your trade policy is, your environmental policy, your energy policy. And also, you guys are evil. Your, your entire history is evil anyway, because you had this evil empire. And so, you know, submit yourselves to the rest of Europe. And then a ri- an uprising against that ends in Brexit, saying, all right, we're out. If that's how you guys are going to act, no, we're, we're going to be Britain. We're going to be we're going to be proudly Britain, and we're going to break off from you folks in the EU. It hasn't happened in France, but it grows. Marine Le Pen in that fairly right wing party. That's the same message. It's it is it's saying to them, no, France French is a gendered language. We're not introducing a lot of new articles like we use a uh and the the indefinite and definite articles. They have gendered versions of those. No, we're not doing it. We're proudly French. We're proudly France. We're not acquiescing to your religion. We're also not going to say we're sorry for being French and things we've done in the past. We, we have a proud history. We're, you know, we, we have Notre Dame here. We're actually very Catholic. We're not sorry. That's been the, the ethic in France as Marine Le Pen grows. And again, saying to the EU, you can't tell us what to do. We're tired of Europeanism or globalism or worldism telling us what to do. The Swedes recently did this. The Swedes elected their really first ever right-wing government, primarily on the idea that you got to stop having so much immigration. We are Swedes. We're not citizens of the world. That was part of, get this, both Trumpism and Bernie Sandersism are part of this movement. Trumpism is, again, it's America first. But you know who was doing America first stuff before he was? Bernie Sanders was. Bernie Sanders was the first one saying, you're sending all the jobs overseas. Your free trade agreements are sending the jobs to Mexico and to China. And so we need stronger unions here. We need stronger regulation here. We need to have manufacturing here and textile mills. It's Bernie Sanders first. That's saying we got to focus on our people. That's why he's a socialist, not a communist. Socialists tend to be national socialism. They They want communism, but only for their people. Communists are actually trying to take over the world. They want to be transcended above all things. That was actually the big difference between the Nazis and the communists in World War II. The communists wanted an international workers of the world unite. That wasn't a Nazi thing. It was that one race, that one area. They wanted to be hegemonic over that one area. That I'm not calling I'm not calling Bernie or Trump by the way hegemonic fascist or communist or anything. I'm saying they were a reaction to being told, your history is bad, your your country's falling apart, all your traditions and the way things worked—they they don't work anymore. And there's bristling against this. The countries of the EU are, I'll use that word again, they're bristling against top-down governments. Especially right now when it comes to energy and environmental policy. They're saying, "No, we have resources in our own country. We're not going to have a third party, the European Union, tell us we can't use them because it's going to hurt the environment. Choose us, choose the populace over the environment." And then I start—I lost the thread on this. It was a th- speech, right? She gave this great speech about identity, and the Western world has had its identities threatened by wokeism. And so she push, pushes back against that. I actually listened to a report that criticized her for using the old phrase, something like uh, faith, fatherland, and family, I think is how it got translated into English with three Fs. But these are all laudable things. Yeah, we want to be a people of faith. Yes, we're a good, distinct people. It says nothing bad about any other people, but we have our own unique, distinct culture. It's good. We want to keep that going. We want to teach it to our kids. And we want family. We we think it is important that husbands marry wives and have kids and stay together. Yes, that's how entire that's how nations get built. And it's it tends to be leftist wokeism that tr- that religion is saying no, every person is an atomized, itemized individual with no responsibilities to anybody else, and they're breaking things like religion. Don't be don't be responsible to a religion. Don't be responsible to your fatherland, your nation. Don't be responsible to your family. Everyone is a nation unto themselves in this religion. And there's pushback now. There's pushback against a religion that's trying to break things apart. Ultimately, we're in a moment here where internationalism and globalism, things that I think are good for the economy, they're good for people for flourishing. I I would consider myself to be an economic globalist. I'm an economic internationalist. And it's it's man, it hurts some folks here, hurts some folks in the West. But having capitalism go global has lifted literally now billions of people out of poverty. I can't remember who said this recently though. Someone said recently, uh, "We are a country with an economy, not the other way around." I think what's happened for about thirty or forty years now is it's been thought the other way, that we are an economy that, and we happen to live in one of the countries that's in the global economy. And our loyalty is going to be to the to growth, our loyalty is going to be to us, so either wealth or to just self-actualization, but it's not going to be to our families, our faith, or to our fatherland. And the regular run-of-the-mill folks are just now responding to the excesses of that. And in Italy, it's not in any kind of ugly or dangerous way. So you should know the truth about that. I'm going to have to do the social media responses at another... You know what? Let's go. Let's do this. I think I have three minutes. Here we go. Uh, I asked you, the social media laws are troubling to me because I'm not comfortable with telling Twitter and Facebook and all these social media companies, hey, you started your company, but we're going to tell you how to run them. I had one smart argument that I'm still chewing on to see if I totally agree with it. But uh, Shane's idea was, it's something like the argument for a manslaughter criminal charge where you didn't mean to do this bad thing, but you did the inadvertent consequence of your action was someone dying. So we're going to have a law against that. And now, while this is not as intense, there is the idea of apply... His idea here is applying the logic of that to the social media companies. You're not necessarily meaning to do a bad thing, but you are. There's consequences to what you've done, and so now there's going to be some, some kind of government, not criminal but government regulation on this because you didn't mean to break things, but you broke things and you are breaking things. And so now we have to apply that to you. I think there's something there. I want to chew on it more before I fully endorse that idea. It Definitely challenges my thinking because again, my instinct is don't regulate them at all. And then there is several of you sent me this argument because I think you all got it from Elon Musk or maybe a lot of you just originated it, but he makes the town square argument but the town square was once a place where you could publish your own stuff, hand out flyers. That was the case in most of the world. And then the internet was a very good town square because it was, again, a place everybody could go and try to spread their ideas. And often the internet would reward good ideas because everyone had a largely even footing or you could spend money, some money to you know increase your visibility. But now the internet is not the town square. Facebook, Twitter, Facebook, or Twitter, are the town square. And so it's been taken out of the hands of the people deciding the things they like and the market winning out. But instead, it's just Facebook and Twitter. They've decided, these are the things you'll see, these are the things you'll like, and we are not showing you anything else. And so they stole the town square, is the argument from the people, of organic growth and just finding the random blogger, finding the person that you agree with and that maybe it's just talent that leads more people their direction there's some argument there too so slowly i might be getting one over to the idea that you can regulate the social media companies in some way because they're doing damage they don't mean to cause or because they've broken the idea of town square and you have to have one or they've made it a monopoly for the town square I'm grateful that you listened to The Corey Truax Show. You can find me on all the social medias. I hope you will. And I will be back with another new edition of The Cory Truax Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.